Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 26th of November 2023, 9.30 service. Tim Davis speaking on Psalm 11. Have you ever had well-meant but bad advice given to you? I think it's the worst kind of advice we receive, isn't it? Now, we can get bad advice from people who are just bad at their jobs or intentionally giving us bad advice and recommendations. It's dreadful, but you hopefully learn from it and won't repeat the mistake you made of being misled. Um, I've worked in financial services for much of my adult life, and unfortunately I've seen my fair share of people where um, they come to us for help because they've been sold a completely inappropriate product in the past, which wasn't remotely in their best interests, but just happened to be recommended because it generated the most amount of commission for the advisor at the time. Um, that sort of bad advice, now you hopefully only listen to once and are wiser and more vigilant going forward. But what about the advice you get from those who know us and genuinely mean well, but actually get it so wrong? Um, you know the type. Friends who think they know what you need, but really are only thinking about what worked for them. Talking about this type of scenario. Posting on me social media, anyone got recommendations for a box set to watch prefer rom-coms? The response is never good. People don't think about what you would actually like to watch. Just what they liked and what you think you should like too. And trusting in their judgment, you might well go ahead with some of the recommendations. You like friends? You should watch Breaking Bad. Instead of a bunch of friends living in a New York apartment who drink coffee, it's about two people who manufacture vast quantities of drugs and everyone gets brutally killed. You enjoyed The Queen's Gambit? Black Mirror is what you want to watch. No, it's just like it, but instead of a drama about a young chess, female chess prodigy, it's a series of standalone short films about unnerving dystopian future which leaves you unable to sleep afterwards because you're still scared by what you've witnessed for three hours beforehand. Has anyone had that sort of situation? I've seen a few. No, it's the same when you ask me recommendations about what books to read. You say, I like trashy, easy to read books. The helpful friend comes in. Let me recommend James Joyce and Leo Toy Story, Leo Toy Story to you. Uh, Well-meaning advice, which turns out to be utterly dreadful advice. Psalm 11 feels like a psalm written by someone who is almost exasperated at the rubbish advice being provided by well-meaning acquaintances. It's a reflective or meditative psalm. And the psalmist, David, begins his meditation, verse 1, saying this. It's a bold statement. In the Lord, I take refuge. David's having a difficult time, it appears. He's under attack by his enemies. And it sounds like the threat is very real. You know, this isn't people saying nasty things about him. It's very real threats to his life. But David begins this psalm of reflection with that bold statement. In the Lord, I take refuge. And then David goes on to berate the person or persons who have seemingly been advising him to run away and seek shelter in the mountains. He says, how then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? Now, to be honest, I think um, this may have come as a bit of a shock or surprise to the person or persons David is addressing. 
they themselves, being part of David's inner circle, are most likely desperate to flee to the mountains and find refuge themselves. And this is generally not a bad idea, it would appear. Um, There are many examples in the Bible of people fleeing when times get tough. Jonah, the Israelites escaping Pharaoh. David himself hid in caves and mountains when King Saul was trying to kill him. And then on the flip side, Saul too had to hide in caves when he thought his life was in danger. Whoever David is addressing seems to think they have a pretty good case to recommend to David that they get out of danger quickly and go hide somewhere safe. Surely, you know, it's not fair what's happening to them, but the world is falling apart around them. And they ask this very pertinent question of David. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Come on, David, it's all very well being godly man, but when the world is going to pot around us, what can we meaningfully do? When we look around at the world today, we might well ask, what can we do? Everything seems so volatile, so dangerous, so temporary. Where is our stability? Where's our refuge from the storms of life? Running away and hiding from it all actually sounds like a pretty good idea at times. And sure, we want to do the right thing, but honestly, what can we do? The first three verses of this meditative psalm are essentially the question. The remaining verses form David's answer. Rather than fleeing to the mountains, David chooses to flee to God. He says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. That's a lot to unpack there, but it is worth doing to really get the benefit of a psalm that perhaps more than any of the ones we've looked at this introductory series really can speak to us, challenge us, and encourage us today. So David responds to that question, what can the righteous do? By reminding himself of the Lord's position, his heavenly throne. Do we remind ourselves of that? When we hear or see troubling news about the reality of evil in the world, do you remind yourself of God's lofty position of sovereignty? From within his holy temple, his heavenly throne, the place from where God is pictured as laying down the law and adjudicating, God is in a unique position. It's not on earth, it's not earthly. It's above all. It's unapproachable and unassailable. You can't attack a palace and a throne that are somewhere you can't get to. The wicked have their target on earth, the righteous. But no matter what happens to his subjects, our Lord, our King, will never be defeated. People can rebel against him, and they do all the time. 
that will never defeat him. He's in charge. He's sovereign. No one can touch him. And after that powerful assertion, we get an almost unexpected comment, I feel. He says, the Lord examines the righteous. From David's indignant response to the best intentions, advice from his counsellors around him, I was thinking David's going to go on a bit of a rant about how great God is and how he smites his enemies and how there's nothing to fear. And he does. But he also raises this really important point. We do go through difficult times. But David sees this as a way for God to see and know our true selves and our true faith. David understands that the crisis he's going through, um, he sees it as a period of testing or discipline in us, part of the process whereby God examines and disciplines the righteous. But David also makes a point to highlight God's judgment. He judges the righteous and the wicked alike. And he hates the wicked. The verses are quite confronting. As David states that while the Lord tests the righteous, examines the righteous, he hates the wicked and those who love violence. It's not language that, as Christians, we often feel that familiar with when it comes to God. Now, we're more accustomed to the truth that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for us. But we do know, too, that the God of the Old Testament aids his people in battle, granting them victory, the end result being the slaughter of their enemies. And it can be hard to sometimes reconcile this with the God who sent his son to die for us so that we all might be forgiven. But that just highlights that there is no escaping judgment at some point. God still hates wickedness, but he offers the wicked the chance of forgiveness and redemption. As Stephen said, we're coming to the end of looking at Psalms uh, for the moment. I'm sure we'll dive back into it at some point next year. But this feels like quite a good one to finish with as we move into Advent. Christmas is all about a message of hope of redemption and salvation, of God's love for the world. And the final verse of Psalm 11 is one of hope. The righteous, the just, the upright will see his face. And so through his meditation on the subject, on the situation he finds himself in, and in responding to the advice of those around him, David presents not just the psalm of comfort and reassurance but also of challenge because the challenge is not just to stand firm in the face of persecution and trust in God but to actively live a righteous life on the one hand then taking refuge in God means fleeing to hiding in Jesus the rock cleft for us But taking refuge in God also means going a step further. That means living a life of holiness in a chaotic world, completely devoted to God. In Christ, God's people really can perform the righteous deeds 
that God loves, even when the foundations are destroyed, as it says in the psalm, and troubles surround us. Any who sincerely follow after God in righteousness and purity are safe under his protection. I could just end the sermon there. feels happy enough. Chuck out a couple more sort of challenging sound bites. Okay. When we're really tested, do you stand firm? Keep the faith, have hope. When times are hard, do you run away or do you run to God? Do you turn back with God at your side and face the difficult times? And if I'm honest, <clears throat> it's too easy for me to say something like that and it just sounds like a load of Christian waffle. Lots of cliched sound bites, a bit like a motivational seminar in church almost. Fight the good fight, everyone. See you next Sunday. <coughs> no. Perhaps we actually, to really appreciate the psalm, do we need to experience it as David was experiencing it? Do we have the courage to stand firm when enemies are firing arrows out of us, at us from out of the darkness? Not flee to the nearest mountain range and find a cave to hide in? Do we wait for fiery coals, burning sulfur, and a scorching wind to halt our enemies in their tracks? Probably not the most helpful scenario to imagine either, really, is it? In the relative comfort of New Orleans. For some Christians in the world, the threat of violent persecution isn't so far from that reality. But for us, in our relative comfort, how exactly does this psalm feel relevant to us? today what are the times when we want to flee and God calls us to turn to him and engage with the discomfort of the challenge that faces us I keep finding myself being drawn back to the question at the end of verse 3 what can the righteous do when we consider David's reflection that God examines us what do we think God sees does God ask of us what can the righteous do do you remember the first time you walked past someone who was homeless did the young you want to give everything you had to help them because it seemed so unfair do you remember the first time you saw someone being bullied did you want to step in and stop it do you just somehow wish you could prevent all the evil and nastiness in the world from happening and yet it just seems insurmountable all too much how could I possibly make a difference how can I face the danger to step in to stand up for my faith and to stand up for others it doesn't matter how good I think I am as a person I can't face it all on my own in a world so broken what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? It shouldn't be a negative question. It's a positive opportunity. Psalm 11 very much feels like a psalm for our time. It is God's word to us through the words of David. It shows us how to struggle on and trust God in the midst of crisis and tremendous difficulty. And it points us to David's greater descendant, Jesus. We're promised that the Lord loves justice, 
and the upright will see his face. And through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, we are then brought into his presence. Where might we be challenged this Christmas? What can the righteous do to make a difference this Advent, this Christmas time? We could take that as a starting point, couldn't we? I decided to have a second reading today, um, and I was drawn to the Beatitudes. They just felt a bit of a sort of similar theme and thread. The Beatitudes, the blessings, if you will, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, take place at the start of his ministry. And Jesus goes all in, I feel, on telling those listening that blessings come through adversity. Being rich and successful doesn't mean that you're automatically blessed by God. It means you've been successful in life. But if it means that it's come at the risk of only being interested in the materialism of this world and not what God has to offer, then you're missing out on the true blessing that he does offer. When we consider the hope we have at Christmas time, hope of a saviour, fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, a coming redeemer who will bring light to this world. It can be easy just to have this comfy, rose-tinted view of Christianity. But Jesus never held back for reminding us that life is still full of challenges. And God still calls us to be righteous. Jesus says those times are a blessing. It's when you know that God is still in control and still there. It's when you know that he examines the hearts of the righteous and the wicked alike and loves to see righteousness. Blessing and adversity, courage to stand firm. It is sometimes hard to feel that we can completely trust in God, particularly when it's so uncertain what's coming. But the Psalms are full of words of comfort and inspiration. It's a hope you found, even if just these opening 11 ones we've looked at. But as too are the words of Jesus himself that he spoke. I'm going to end by just rereading some of those Beatitudes again, but using a slightly different translation from the message. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves careful. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your heart and your mind put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are 
and your place in God's family. And you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom.